This is the Fixed Plasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. This episode, I'm going to move away slightly from cyberpunk and into cyberpunk adjacent, you know, techno thrillers, that sort of thing. So consider this, at the end of the, the 80s, um, early 90s, we had uh, the vision of the future was pretty much cyberpunk or something like cyberpunk, and that persisted for quite some time. It partly drew on imagery from things like Blade Runner. Uh, there's um, Total Recall 2077, I think, is a 90s TV series that's kind of half Total Recall for the K. Dick and, and Do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep, and half Blade Runner as a blatant ripoff of Blade Runner imagery. But anyway, what I want to talk about, in fact, is a couple of films. So it's going to talk more about the imagery than uh, necessarily the plot, although I'll touch on those as well. So two intriguing films from the 90s that um, they affected me in a big way when I saw them. When I rewatched them, they didn't quite stand up to the um, you know the fond memories I had, which is always a danger. The first film is Wim Wilder's Until the End of the World, um, or uh, Bis Ants Undevelt, I think is the correct pronunciation. Um, it's a French-German film, mostly English language. There are several cuts of this film. The theatrical one was about 158 minutes long, which is already stupidly long. I saw that in the theatre. And the DVD I have is probably what they call the trilogy version. It's certainly, it's presented on three discs, each of which is, is you know, an hour and a half long. There's also called the director's cut, and I, 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 Wikipedia thinks there's there's one or two different ones. Um, this one I, I checked, it's 279 minutes long. That's a hell of a long time to spend watching a film. So it's cut into three episodes, and, and I guess for every person who says, you know, this is too long, there's there's going to be another person who will, they're going to love soaking the movie up, because it's um, it's shot in so many global locations, and it's got this real travelogue feel to it. So the plot is, our point of view character, Claire, is doing the travelling, and at first, uh, she's a sort of pleasure seeker. Um, and later, after she meets a guy called Sam, and he rips her off, stealing her money, a substantial sum of money, which she acquired for some bank robbers, I think, um, through a convoluted side plot, which is conducted in French. And that's awkward because my version is in German, so it has English with German subtitles. Anyway, after he rips her off, uh, and um, she goes in pursuit of him, we find that he's actually on the run. Um supposedly he's stolen some sort of secret research project and he's going by the name Trevor that time. It turns out the secret research project is the property of his father and it's a device for taping and interpreting thoughts and dreams, although the dreams come later. So it's a sort of globe-trotting techno-thriller plot um, and it's kind of also it's set against this apocalyptic backdrop of 1999 where an Indian nuclear satellite is in a decaying orbit um, and to a lesser or a greater extent this is responsible for a sort of pre-apocalyptic behaviour from mass panic to a, a sort of surrender to hedonism that seems to be what Claire is doing her drive is, is just to seek pleasure. And that's kind of also how the film takes a twist. Halfway through the film, the Americans shoot down the satellite, causing this global EMP burst that knocks out nearly all electronics and drops everything down to several tech levels. And at that time, Claire and Sam are flying over the Australian outback to attempt to return to Sam's father's laboratory. 
And it's a really memorable scene in itself. But it also marks this transition from the sort of colourful journey through many countries to suddenly being in the middle of nowhere in a barren landscape with only you know, pockets of settlements and no tech. So very Mad Max almost. The remaining film is then concerned with the brain taping technology and the unintended consequence it brings. Because it's able to record dreams, this becomes its dominant use. And the people become addicted to watching their own dreams and and their memories. Now, because the characters are isolated, this effect happens on the individual level, not the societal level. So it hasn't got out and affected mass behaviour yet. It's worth noting, though, that the Aborigines, who are supporting Henry, Henry's Sam's father, um, they don't approve of this use of technology in the way to intrude on the dreams. And so they desert them. A few characters start wandering around addicted to their own dreams. Sam Neill plays Eugene, who is Claire's estranged lover, and he eventually finds Claire and forces her through withdrawal. Um, and everyone, everyone shakes off their addiction, and, and the characters eventually move on. Claire eventually you know, goes to an international space station. It's worth mentioning that um, past the sort of mini-apocalypse, there are some scenes of this amiable community building. You know, Sam, Sam Neill himself, playing Eugene, uses this time to write down the story that is being portrayed in the film on a vintage typewriter because he is our narrator also. The other comment that I want to make is about the visual presentation of technology. And this is why I want to concentrate a lot on the visual part in this episode. Now, this is 1991, so tech is chunky. Uh, Claire's car has uh, computerized maps, but they kind of come on this, this big, ugly cartridge, like an 8-track cartridge, and the graphics are all blocky and low-res. And similarly, uh, the portable screens that everyone views their dreams on are small, and the devices that hold them are big and plastic. It's, it's very much like a Sony Walkman aesthetic, if you can imagine that. This big, chunky plastic brick with a tiny, tiny screen that you can barely make out anything. You wonder, how, how does anyone actually get addicted to that if you can't see what it is? Okay, so speaking of Sony Walkman, I next want to talk about Strange Days. The other film, which is a Catherine Bigelow film, and it stars Ray Fiennes as Lenny Nero, who's this sleazy former cop who peddles recorded experiences captured using a squid, S-Q-U-I-D. That's a superconducting quantum interface device, which is, is basically a set of electrodes connected to a nearby mini-disc recorder that records experiences. Not so much dreams, but memories, certainly, and the physiological experiences that go with them. Once again, we have a physical media, no Wi-Fi, or World Wide Web. And this is, this is 1995, so the technology presented is bang up to date for the time the film was made. But obviously it seems anachronistic now. That might be something worth bearing in mind, given that previously we've talked about retrofuturism and cyberpunk. So once again, we have this device used to record and play back conscious thought and memory, including the physiological sensations, as I mentioned. And in this case, the tech was apparently developed by the CIA as um, an alternative to a body wire. Um, I originally thought it was an interrogation method, but I, I checked again. It's, it's actually a, an alternative to uh, wearing a wire. After it was abandoned by the CIA for some reason, it made it its way onto the black market, where it's now being used for illegal entertainment. And 
you can see why it's illegal. Um, there are loads of concerns over, you know, consent and surveillance. And in fact, that's a central pillar of the plot. Before I get into the plot, though, two other comments about this tech. Firstly, it's not actually new for cyberpunk. The squid actually appears in William Gibson's short story, Johnny Mnemonic. Mnemonic. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Where it's used to read encrypted data in Johnny's head by a, a junky dolphin. It's a good story. Um, but secondly, in Strange Days, the squid was developed by the CIA. Okay, good. Well, apparently, at the end of Until the End of the World, Sam's father, Henry, is taken away by the CIA. I, I forgot this part because it's only incidental. Both films are set in 1999, but there's kind of this delicious metaphysical plot wormhole going on there. You can imagine that the, you know, the CIA abduct a dream scientist from an alternative universe to help them with the war on terror or, or covert surveillance or that sort of thing. It's very Delta Green, I think. But anyway, James Cameron wrote the script, and you've got to wonder if it's more than just a coincidence. So, Onto the plot of Strange Days. I'm only going to cover this very briefly because, in all honesty, it's not great. I can forgive it because the direction and the performances, especially Angela Bassett as Mace, are just fantastic. Anyway, the story happens in LA on New Year's Eve 1999 and involves the witnessing and brain recording of the murder of a vocal anti-establishment rapper called Jericho One. The woman who witnessed the killing of Jericho by two corrupt cops flees them and sends the tape to Lenny Nero, love that physical media, right? Who then spends the rest of the film unpicking the mystery. And it, it is a noir film packed with gangsters, femme fatales, and you know, people who live on the edge of the law. And whilst it's techno thriller rather than cyberpunk, we already have an established link between the future and noir with the likes of Blade Runner. I might come back to this a bit later on that fact. Um, but what it makes it compelling is, firstly, the scenes around Lenny's relationships, especially Mace. And secondly, the whole pre-millennial anxiety with the, the rising tensions between race, the uncertainty about what's going to happen at Y2K, etc. Now, image-wise, we have some great direction that, that captures the multicultural, almost tribal elements of the city, coupled with casual violence glimpsed on the streets from afar like like it's something acceptable like it's it's more than the authorities can control this this disposability of life the the lawlessness and the tribal organization are are very cyberpunk even if the tech is absent so i'm going to get on to themes now there are three main ones i want to cover the first is a world where you can record and interpret events experienced by someone else it's going to be exploited, and it is exploited in Strange Days, obviously, but it hasn't got to that level in until the end of the world. And it's possibly going to be taken in a new direction. Well, that is until the end of the until the end of the world. Originally, it was for recall of conscious memories, but actually, it's used to view the unconscious. The social consequences are addiction, perhaps a loss of identity, and that certainly happens in Until the End of the World, simply because the characters become uninterested in their daily lives. The sort of, you know, Philip K. Dick notions of memory and the reliability of that memory are heavily implied in both cases. And once you start taping them off people's brains, the, the next logical step is uploading new memories and identities. So that ties in with Snow Crash, which talked about hacking the brain with language. 
And then there's Joss Whedon's dollhouse with its dolls which are implanted with new identities. And after that, once you get once you get your cloud-based distributed and ubiquitous computing, you can get your your zombies, which is also a, a factor that happens in in dollhouse. Um, you can have you know resleeving conscious minds into new bodies. You can have gestalt intelligences. You can have you know sensates basically. And the list goes on. All these things that this technology could potentially do. Of course, at the moment, it's just reading. But if it could write, hmm. Now, of course, you've got the other social consequences of surveillance, of uh, surveillance without consent, and the admissibility of this surveillance as evidence in court. Now, bear in mind that these memories are played back directly into minds, not on a screen. At least that's true for strange days. And the other physiological sensations are present, you know, adrenaline, arousal, fear, sickness. Do people need to be trained to interpret the content? Is the emotional impact biased by this method of playback? If, if, if this becomes a useful tool that people use to interpret past events and recordings, then they become a little like mentats in Dune, you know, physical savants who can recall what is presented, maybe interpreted, but certainly they can't write it down objectively. You have to have people you trust to then play back. And this subject also comes up in uh, another 1989 novel, which I'm going to talk about a little later, which is Jeff Ryman's The Child Garden, where you have characters who can remember everything and then recall it directly. So I'm going to get on to the second theme now, which is fear of the future, you know, the uncertainty. The fear of the future is not a common theme in cyberpunk. And a lot of the time, there isn't time to be afraid, quite frankly. You know, the action's fast-paced. Um, there are occasional moments of introspection about the global situation via the corporate control and capitalist supremacy and what it means to be human. There might be some anxiety about human evolution as we edge towards transhumanism, I guess. But on the whole, we don't see the kind of pre-apocalyptic mass panic and reversion to tribal animal behavior, at least not as much. I guess there are nomads in Cyberpunk 2020, and there is this idea of people who are anti-tech uh, because they are afraid of it. Maybe they are living in this pre-apocalyptic state. I talked about foreshadowing the end of the world some time ago with uh, Ben Winter's The Last Policeman series. Uh, and in that case, disaster is assured. In this example... A lot of there's a lot of anxiety about the end of the world, and we don't know what will actually happen. You know, I have various theories from different cults and groups and talking heads about what we can expect. And the interesting part is the build-up, because once the deadline is there, it becomes almost cathartic in, in the case of Strange Days. It's kind of a relief that it's here, you can't do anything about it. And it kind of transforms the story in that way. And even more so in Until the End of the World, where suddenly, flying over the desert, still expecting to travel places, and the EMP burst hits, as transport becomes unreliable, and suddenly your, your journey stops here. Story doesn't stop, but the journey stops. A lot like in Apocalypse World, the actual catastrophe doesn't really matter. Here the change isn't important to pin down, because whatever it is, there will be panic. During that panic, people will 
set themselves up as leaders, promising answers and salvation, drawing followers around them, consolidating their positions, you know, if they're hardholder types and hocus especially. So that's the position of the pre-apocalyptic tension. But the third thing I want to talk then is about noir fiction. Cyberpunk and noir are a good fit, so why is that? Well, noir tends to have desperate characters living on the edge of society and solving problems themselves, and a lot of it is about existing in the now. Some of it may be the capitalist dystopian overtones. Narrative habits like hard framing and scenes is, is another common feature that I think works really well in both genres. Of course, there is the argument that the parallel genre is tech noir, and Blader is often held up as the primary example. Crucially, though, even though the characters are outsiders, there's not a lot of punk. But anyway, genre boundaries are there to be crossed in the first place. I'm just going to talk uh, very briefly about the role-playing bit this time, because what I'm going to do is, rather than think of a completely new role-playing game, which, frankly, anyone can write a techno-thriller, police procedural investigative game, I want to concentrate on the idea I had last episode, which is a game called Zaibatsu. The idea is that the characters live in a prefabricated corporate village in the middle of nowhere. It's the idea of a seed community to create a a new frontier, say at a glacier or a desert or a rainforest, somewhere far away from human civilization, but not cut off because there is infrastructure that can carry the people there. There's a monorail or train or something. But the idea I specifically wanted to think about was rising tensions and this pre-collapse tension that you can have. Now, the settlement itself, imagine it's it's kind of like a techno-futuristic Milton Keynes with corporate branding. It's it's located in the middle of nowhere. Everyone is a com- everyone is a corporate employee and everything is provided for. It's almost as if it's post-scarcity. The idea there is that you have a very stable situation. But once you get away from that environment to the city, and there are plenty of reasons to travel to the big city, there are a lot of different things that you can contrast with life at home. If you want to run a sort of noir game that happens in the city, well, you, you, make, this, you make this corporate environment a sort of safe and stable uh, suburb, of, if you like, where nobody really knows whatever the people do. But when we travel away from that and into the city and civilization, we find all the dirty, grubby things that people actually get up to and what they have to keep hidden from home. Alternatively, you have this stable community away from the city, which they travel back to occasionally, and you have a contrast in the urban environment where, quite apart from stability, it's extremely unstable, but more to the point, people are anxious about the future. It's lawless. It's not safe to go out on the streets without bodyguards. And th- and this pre-collapse tension, I think you could make that part of a plot and even draw the characters in the settlement into this plot, not just because they have to go to places where it's more evident, but maybe make them the cause of some imminent change. What if they're scientists working on something that is going to change the world, is about to be released? Could it be uh, biological or chemical? Maybe it's a... Maybe it's artificial intelligence. The other thing, of course, I mentioned earlier in noir is hard framing. And I think that if you are going to go to different locations and you're going to have these massive contrasts, then 
hard framing is something you just you have to do it's not enough to drift in and out of people's lives if you want to introduce the world outside you have to go outside the settlement and have difficult scenes now there's nothing stopping you having contrasting episodes let's say you want to spend one episode just following people around at home and finding out what life is like there maybe you want to imply what's happening in the distance and just seed that into the game without actually showing it but maybe other times you want to draw upon that foreshadowing in previous episodes and then go straight into a hard-framed scene with something adversarial and dangerous, maybe a, a, hard, a, a hard-nosed negotiation in the corporate territory or a bodyguarding gig or a deal with gangers that's incredibly dangerous in some lawless part of the city. And the last thing I want to think about, and this is really, this is kind of a, a bit of a left turn at the lights, I guess, is what if this settlement is also an experiment? What if people's memories are being played with or if their experiences are being recorded? Now, if they're being, if they're in the settlement to be observed, what is the value of just recording their memories? Where are those going? They can't be recording for any financial gain or societal benefit because, of course, it's just a small group of people who are in a relatively well-controlled environment. You don't have the threat of dangerous terrorists or unlawful behavior there or at least we assume we don't so the question is why would you tape your captive group of guinea pigs memories and dreams what would you do with them could it be something like dark city where you change people's memories and experiences and position in life on a nightly basis i'm going to stop there thank you for listening and i really hope you found this interesting until next time. Bye. Hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, it'd be great if you could like, share, review, subscribe, or just comment. Music for the podcast is provided by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chrissabriskie.com. Check the show notes. Bye. Bye.